Amen. You may be seated. I'm struck by God's providence. We do try to plan services out, hymns, readings, and that sort of thing. But we, we follow a lectionary for the gospel reading, and the gospel reading choice was set before us today. And as Pastor Jim said, it was a very sad passage. Uh, today, our text for our sermon, 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you would, please turn there. It's another very, very, very sad text of scripture. And today is St. Patrick's Day. And if you know anything about the Irish, the Irish externally might seem very happy, joyous, hospitable, fun. And yet, they also are known for a penchant for amazingly sad songs and stories. So the Lord in his providence has brought us to a day of sadness, not that we might despair, but that we might be focused upon the only one in whom hope and ultimate joy is found, and that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Give your attention to the reading of God's word for Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons didn't walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord, Yahweh, said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons, and he will appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements, his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks And you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you'll cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. 
but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. The word of God for the people of God. Yes, thanks be unto God, even for sad stories. Maybe you can relate. A young man, by saying young, that means it wasn't me. A a young man relates the story of his high school days, of what happened to him. A memory that was forever uh, stamped upon his brain and his psyche. You see, there was a girl that he really, really, really liked. He had been secretly admiring this young lady for a long time. Well, after a long period of time, he finally got up the nerve to ask her on a date to maybe go to see a movie with him. And this was his his first time ever to broach that subject with any girl. Well, sure enough, she gave him a phone number. And she said that he could reach her by calling that number. This was the days before texting. And just call that number and they would set up something, set up a date, arrange the details if it was okay with her parents. Well, you can imagine, once he got that number, this wave of relief, the the nerves were calmed, a wave of relief and a wave of joy just crashed over him. I mean, he was on cloud nine. He was as happy as he could be. We might say he was stoked. If you were to use emojis, you'd need the Snoopy one that's doing the happy dance. He was a happy young man. So he goes home and he decides, I'm going to call her tonight. I'm not going to wait a lot of time. I'm not going to waste a lot of time. I'm going to call her tonight. I'm going to give enough time uh, for her to have dinner with her family, but I'm going to call shortly thereafter before it gets too late. So... As soon as that time came, he got his phone, he started dialing. And finally, after what seemed like an eternity, someone answered. Well, it wasn't her. And it didn't sound like her, her parents, and he'd heard her parents before. It didn't sound like her siblings, and he'd heard her siblings before. He heard the voice of a complete stranger. She had given him the rejection hotline number. And the next day, he goes to school, and he's heartbroken. He's embarrassed, and he's ticked. He's mad. And to top it all off, when he tried to talk to her, you know what she did? She just laughed at him. And she laughed at him. And she laughed at him. Again and again. There's one word for that, rejected. He was rejected. It's not so unusual of experience of of being rejected. The details may change, right? But, But the feelings are quite similar. From Colonel Sanders trying to sell his famous secret chicken recipe for over a thousand times and getting rejected before finally some restaurant decided they'd take a chance on it. To our heartbroken young lover in high school, 
to a high schooler receiving that rejection letter from the college that they just dreamed about. To the last person to be picked uh, on the pickup basketball game at school. To the former wife seeing her 84-year-old billionaire husband with a new thing on his arm. To the parent watching the prodigal head off to the pigsty. Rejection. It's not a fun topic. But it's nearly a universal experience, isn't it? And it's an experience that we, we need to talk about. And 1 Samuel chapter 8 is about rejection. Let's walk through it. I see, I see three main things here. I see, first of all, the silver lining in some rejection. So there's a little bit of good news. Secondly, I see the, the objects of the Israelites' rejection. And lastly, I see the nature of such rejection. First in the silver lining. Verses 1 through 3. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They rejected the way of their father. And they took bribes and perverted justice. The story sounds so familiar, doesn't it? It it, it sounds like whom? It sounds like Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, right? And yet in Eli's case, there was a strong contributing factor to the rebellion, the the wickedness, the vileness of Hophni and Phinehas. And and that contributing factor, it's not the total reason, but the large contributing factor was Eli's indulgent parenting, right? His failures, his his turning a blind eye to their obvious abuses, their their sexual immorality, their greediness. He turned a blind eye to it. He, He was a failure as a parent. But as Pastor Jim made this excellent point several weeks ago, children going rogue isn't always a function of bad parenting. Let me say that again. Children going rogue isn't always a function of bad parenting. Prodigals can reject good, loving, and faithful parents. Sure, Samuel wasn't perfect. And maybe that some of the imperfection is even hinted at here. He made his sons to be judges, to, to be sort of a, a, a dynastic uh, judgeship. He, did, he didn't wait for the Lord to raise up a judge. I'm not sure if that's sinful. The text doesn't give us much more information. But I am sure Samuel was a sinner. And yet it wasn't his sin. It never is a sin that's emphasized in these passages of Scripture, is it? What's emphasized? His faithfulness. His faithfulness to be a man of God, to serve the Lord's people, to judge well. And yet Joel and Abijah turn out to be some pretty rotten apples, don't they? Despite 
his faithfulness. If as a parent, your grown children go rogue, if they fall away, hopefully for but a season, if they become prodigal, it may not be directly because of your failures as parents. Sure. Examine your life. Certainly, confess any sinful failures that you recognize to the Lord and to to, to them. But it could be that they are rejecting your God-enabled faithfulness. It could be, but hopefully for just a time, that in rejecting you, they are rejecting whom? Or God's work in and through you. And we see this sort of thing even here in this text, don't we? Samuel took this request of the Israelites, this demand of the Israelites, that he give them a king. He took it personally, right? He took it as they were rejecting him. In his mind, that's what they were doing. But what does God tell him? Verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's the first thing I see. There there can be a silver lining even when you're rejected. It could be that you're rejected. Why? Because of your faithfulness to God. Second. Thing I see in this text, the objects of the Israelites' rejection. Who or what were they rejecting? Well, as we just read, they were rejecting God. They were rejecting Him. And I think that as we see, in that, in that very choice, they are rejecting their own identity. Their identity as Israel. First, their rejection of God. It wasn't that having a human king was wrong. Let's make sure we understand that. You see, in the law, in Deuteronomy, God had made provisions for the people of Israel to one day have a king. To one day have a king, even as the text in Deuteronomy says, like the nations. So it's not so much that their desire for a king on the surface And even a king, like other nations had kings, on the surface is wrong. I I think we see what's wrong when we contrast chapter 8 with chapter 7. Notice two verses in chapter 7, 7-6. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We've sinned against the Lord. Notice verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Don't cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Okay? You get chapter 7. Now get the contrasting chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, 
Behold, you're old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. What's the difference? What's missing? Who's missing? God. God. God is missing in their thought. They're not turning to him. They're not confessing their sin. They're not depending upon him for their protection. No, they're saying, Samuel, just give us what we want. Perhaps if they had gathered before the elderly Samuel and said, Father Samuel, we believe that it may be time for us to have a king as a nation, to have a more stable and a more uh, unified country, headed by God's chosen king. Please cry out unto the Lord for us. Intercede unto Yahweh for us, that, that asking if it, if it seemed good unto him that he would give us a king who is after his own heart. If they had prayed that, maybe the Lord would have answered in blessing. That's not what they did. They were rejecting God as their king. And in this rejection, we see another form of idolatry. We remember their older idolatry of the rabbit foot theology, of the superstition of trying to manipulate God, thinking that their God could be manipulated. Here we see a different type of idolatry. It's taken a different form. Instead of trusting in superstition, now they trust in human government. Politics. Give us a monarchy like the other nations. That's what will save us. Let that sink in. They rejected God. And they turn to government. There's also their rejection of their very own identity. They want to be, and this sounds familiar again, they want to be like the other nations. Not only in the, the, the morality, or better put, immorality of the other nations, not in the religious practice, not only in the religious practice of the other nations, but in their politics as well. They are again buying in hook, line, and sinker into the life and culture of the pagan nations around them. But what were they? What was their God-given identity? The English pastor Tim Chester is helpful here. He, He writes that the Israelites, they were supposed to be a nation whose behavior was governed by the word of God, but instead their behavior is governed by what other people do. They were supposed to be different, distinct, holy, but instead they want to be the same. They want to conform. They want to fit in with the unbelievers around them. They don't want to be weird. Third, they were supposed to be a light unto the nations around them, revealing the rightness of God's rule. But instead, the nations... Learning from Israel, Israel learns from the nations. Sure, as Deuteronomy had allowed, Israel could have a king like the other nations. I mean, they could have that office. They could have that form of government. But the, but the Israelites are taking it a step further. Not only do they want that office, that form of government, they want a king who's like the other nations' kings. That is, the sinful ungodly pagan 
They wanted to be just like the other nations, and in so doing, they no longer wanted to be who they were. They were rejecting their identity. Does that go on today? They were rejecting their calling. I I saw a very sad um, gallery of photos this week. It's before and after photos of, of young women. 15, 20 of them. Before they look like lovely young ladies. We might say relatively normal. And after, and the after is after buying into what's known as third wave feminism. They look totally different. Whether it's the shaved head, whether it is just being covered and inundated with, with all manner of tattoos, whether it's what they're wearing, whether it's through multiple piercings and bodily mutilation, they look incredibly different. They want, wanted to change their identity. And sadly, they wanted to do it so they wouldn't conform. But what did they do? They conform. They look like all the other ladies in that gallery. The Israelites rejected their identity and calling. In so doing, they wanted to conform entirely to the world. That's something of the objects of the rejection. Now quickly and finally, the nature of Israel's rejection. What does the act of rejection, rejecting God as their direct king, reveal about them? What's in the nature of their rejection? What's in the DNA of their rejection? One word, passion. Passion. Passion one for substitutes. Anyone or anything other than the sovereign and holy God would do. Secondly, a passion to fit in. To stop being weird. To be just like everybody else, all the cultures around them. We've seen both. But finally, a passion for idiocy, for stupidity, for foolishness, for being completely irrational. Have you ever tried to talk somebody off the ledge? Ever tried to talk to somebody about where their life is going? And they don't listen. And... Formerly logical folks, seemingly logical folks, become completely what? Irrational. God tells Samuel, give them what they want, but what are you going to do first? You're going to warn them. You're going to tell them about what they're going to get. You want a heavy-handed government? We're going to give you a heavy-handed governor. We're going to give you a king. And if this was bad and the king taking 10% in taxes, oh my. This this king's going to take everything from you. This is what it's going to be like. And you're going to be just like you were back in Egypt. And it's logical. They could have seen it if they had really looked at what was going on among the Philistines and other nations around them, right? They would have seen this very thing. It was obvious. This is logical. He's warning them. And they do what? 
they're, they're, they've got a passion. They're addicted to stupid, stupidity. They don't listen. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Behold what rejecting God and rejecting identity as God's people. Behold what it looks like. Let me wrap up. My word for this sermon has been rejection. An R word. I've got one more R word. And that R word is revealed. I'm afraid, my brothers and sisters, this sad story is even sadder because it does what? It reveals not merely those ancient Israelites. It reveals something of us. Ralph Davis, and if anybody's preaching from these historical books, they need to be reading Ralph Davis. Ralph Davis tells of a day when he was in Mississippi. It was a hot, muggy day. You had, he had a storage room at the back end of the carport. You know, you know that sort of arrangement. And if you don't have a basement and you just got one storage room, guess what? That storage room is what? And one day he had gone in there, he needed to do some things, and if you've ever been in that sort of situation, it's a hot, muggy day, you're sweating, it's Mississippi. And you go to move one thing, what do you do? You knock over something else. And you can tell he's getting, the nice word is frustrated. And, and it's something very sinful happens in those moments. You kind of want to just blast somebody. Can I get an amen? And he was ready, ready to jump, and he heard it. He heard a voice, and in his frustration, no, in his sin, he says, what? Thinking that the person who was calling him was his loving, kind, wonderful wife. Isn't that sinful? But he walks outside and no, it's not his wife. It's his sweet Baptist neighbor. There's no place to hide. He had just blasted his neighbor with his gruffness, with his anger. He was revealed. This text reveals us, brothers and sisters, even those of us who profess faith in Christ, even those of us who are seeking to follow, we so oftentimes are doing what in all practical ways? We're so oftentimes rejecting God. We're so often desiring substitutes. We're so often just wanting to fit in. Oh, Lord, don't let me... Oh, I get, oh, I'm not going to say... They'll think I'm crazy. And we're just stupid. I'm sorry to tell you that. I love you. I love you all. It's a privilege to pastor you. But you're stupid. <laughs> I'm stupid. 
We are so often, aren't we? We'll reject our God and reject our identity as his people. And I'm, I'm tempted to be like Samuel and say, go every man to the city. But I can't. Because although Israel was just desiring that pagan king, ultimately, they and we receive a good king, a great king, a humble king, a loving king, a righteous king, who would come and walk our path and obey the Father perfectly and be rejected of man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and would suffer on our behalf and by his stripes we are healed. The Lord doesn't give, Christian, he doesn't give to you the king you deserve. He gives to you his son. Do not reject his son. Do not reject Jesus Christ. Do not this day nor any of your days reject Jesus Christ. Let us pray.